Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Good. Really good. Um, So we're going to talk about a couple things. Um, We have a couple, I guess we have three studies that we're going to talk about. Uh, The first one I'm going to mention is called Osteopontin in Human Milk and Infant Formula affects infant plasma osteopontin concentrations. So uh, this was published in January 2019 in a a, um, journal called Pediatric Research, and the researchers were Rulan Jiang and Bo Lonerdahl. And Bo Lonerdahl we've heard from many times. He's uh, a bench researcher. His name is pretty popular. Um, So um, have you ever heard of this protein, osteopontin? Uh, osteo who? <laughs> right. That's why, like, it took me a couple of times to just practice saying it. Um, but the amazing thing is that it's very abundant in breast milk, um, and it's not in formula. It's actually a protein that has a lot of immunologic functions, such as being immunomodulatory, which for people who don't know that term, it means it kind of, like, dampens down the immune system when the immune system, when the immune system is getting too excited. Um, such as super high fevers. Um, It is involved in tissue remodeling, bone formation, and then it has a lot of other cellular functions, like it affects cellular attachment, migration, proliferation, which is the, you know, uh, growth of like adding more cells, and differentiation, which is maturity of the cells. But interestingly, it's made by many of our tissues, like heart and liver and lung, and it's in like all body fluid. So like if you were to look at lung fluid or uh, urine or something like that, you'd see it. Um, and it's really high in breast milk. And in fact, it's one of the it's one of the five most abundant proteins in breast milk, which is so interesting. Why we don't haven't talked about it before? Hmm. Yeah, um, it's been found to be resistant to neonatal gastric acids, which means that it's not broken down in the stomach. Because sometimes you wonder, you know, if it's in breast milk. And it goes into the infant, you know, does the infant absorb it? Um, because, and so then one way to figure that out is to find out if it's broken down in the stomach, and it isn't. And, and studies have shown that when infants ingest it, um, it, the osteopontin levels increase in plasma. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a, in a moment. So there was a clinical trial that showed that ad, adding a bovine or cow form of the osteopontin to formula um, showed that infants had a change in their inflammatory cytokine levels, and they also had an immune cell profile that was more similar to breastfed infants than to um, infants who were receiving formula. So it seemed to have an effect on the immune system. And they also found that these infants had, uh, that their fevers were not as high um, as compared to infants who were fed regular formula. So um, so this study, these authors um, in this current uh, paper, is a study that looked at the osteopontin levels 
in breast milk over the time of, of uh, lactation. So they did two things. The first thing they did is they looked at the level of the osteopontin in breast milk over time. So they took 12 women who were from Davis, California, and, they, and on days 1 through 14 postpartum, as well as months 1, 2, 4, 6, and 12, they had the mothers express all the milk from one breast once and looked at the osteopontin levels. And then they did another study where they took plasma levels of osteopontin. They measured plasma levels of osteopontin in Chinese infants. And they compared the Chinese infants in different groups. So each group had 25 infants. And one group, the infants were fed regular formula without any osteopontin. One group was, ex was exclusively breastfed. One group was given formula that had 65 milligrams per liter of osteopontin. And one group had formula with twice as much, with, with 130 milligrams per liter of osteopontin. And the osteopontin that was added to the formula was a bovine form. And then in the infants, they measured their levels at one month, four months, and six months to see what their osteopontin levels were. So in the breast milk, they found that the osteopontin levels were the highest, when do you think? Higher in colostrum or higher in mature milk? Hmm. I mean, I'm guessing, but I'll say colostrum. Right, exactly. Just like other proteins. Yeah. Um, right. So it was, um, at, in colostrum, it was about 178 milligram per liter. And then it kind of went down rather rapidly. Between 8 and 14 days, it went down to 130 milligram per liter. And then by the time 12 months came around, it was about 50 milligrams per liter. Then they looked at the plasma level in those Chinese babies, and they found that the osteopontin level was highest in the babies who were breastfed in the, at, at the first month. And then the osteopontin level was lower in breastfed babies at four months and six months. Um, and the babies who were given formula without the osteopontin level, you'd expect they had the lowest levels, but they did have osteopontin, and it was, it was a significant amount, so we know that these babies were able to make it. Um, and then the babies who got the formula, like the 65 milligram and the um, 130 milligram, their levels were really pretty similar at um, one month, four months, and six months, and actually pretty similar to the levels that the breastfed babies had. Um, so, that, so that was interesting. Um, so um, then they wanted to know, well, gee, you know, that we know that infants can make osteopontin themselves because the formula group, you know, obviously made their own. They were the ones without the supplementation. Mm -hmm. So then they looked at the, the osteopontin in the babies who got the osteopontin through the formula, and they wanted to know, well, is that the bovine form or is that the human form? And they found <laughs> out that it was actually the human form. That, so they weren't really absorbing it from the formula, but the form, with having it in the formula, it stimulated their system to actually mm. endogenously make it themselves. So that was really interesting. Um, you know what this makes me think, as I've thought several times about studies out of Davis. Oh, maybe that part wasn't out of Davis. Is that they have, the too many mass Davis. <laughs> they have too many mass spectrometers, <clears throat> and they don't know what to do with them. Right. <laughs> it's kind of an amazing problem to have. Um, I thought that was really interesting, though. I, I didn't, you know, they don't kind of go into more details to why they hypothesized that, why they even investigated that. But, but that this is whole thing just blows me away. Like, who are these people in China who are like, this 
I mean, maybe their osteopontin labs are way, way more advanced than ours, but yeah. like this protein that I've never heard of, let's make formula with it. <laughs> and what um, ethical agency said, sure, give that to these 25 babies. Well, I think what happens is that um, a lot of the stuff that, that goes on with like, you know, um, uh, molecules, chemicals, um, substances, enzymes or whatever in breast milk, a lot of it's animal studies, right? Like when I look at PubMed, you know, once a week or every couple of weeks, half the studies on breast milk have to do with their pups, their bovine, their goats, their sheep, their, you know, whatever kind of animal. Yeah. And half are, you know, two thirds, or I'm sorry, like one third are human. And so there's all this stuff that's going on that we don't even know about yet. Like what's going to come up next, you know, like coming from that bench research and then coming up to us where they start to look at like the clinical, um, the clinical effectiveness or application of this stuff that they're learning about at the bench level. And I think this is what we're, this is one of these things that we're seeing bubbling up from research is the osteopontin. And, um, so this is translational uh, research right here. It's translational research. And so what's interesting about that is that um, the, the worst, there have been um, animal studies, and I want to talk about one of those. So, um, so one thing that they say is that the levels of osteopontin are higher in colostrum and lower as the milk ages, as the mother, you know, later postpartum. Not, not as the milk ages, but as the mother ages uh, over time. And um, so... Uh, they hypothesize that the higher levels early on probably have a different role than the lower levels that are in breast milk later on. And so this has been looked at with lactoferrin, which we know a lot more about, and that's the most abundant protein in, in breast milk. And they know that the higher levels that are in the colostrum play a role in proliferating the intestinal wall early on, um, but then the lower concentrations later actually promote cell differentiation, so more the maturity mm. of the cells. Um, so, um, so they are. So it's still unclear what the higher levels do versus the lower levels later on for the osteopontin. But there is animal research showing that osteopontin not only uh, plays a role in the immune system, but it also plays a role in gut maturity and brain maturity, um, and it has been shown to enhance myelination of brain cells in mouse pups. And so then there was one study that was done, and this is what I mean by like bubbling up from like, you know, bench and, you know, lab rat research, is that they took uh, what are called wild type mice, you know, mice that don't have like mm -hmm. genetic, you know, genetically screwed up kind of things. <laughs> They're wild type mice who are breastfed by their wild type mothers. And they looked at their ability to remember and their learning ability, and they compared it to mice who were ner who were birthed and nursed by knockout um, osteopontin mothers. So these are mothers that don't have the ability to generate their own osteopontin, so it's not in their breast milk, it's not in their body fluid. And those mouse pups who were nursed by those mothers did not have um, the same ability to learn and to remember. So, um, yeah, so it's interesting. So um, can't wait to see. I should start looking at that bovine and mouse research more closely to see what's going to come up next. God. Yeah. I am geeking out, loving it. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, um, back to uh, some human research over here. I wanted to talk about this recently um, published study in breastfeeding medicine, which was titled Breastfeeding Difficulties, Breastfeeding Duration, Maternal Body Mass Index, and Breast Anatomy, Are They Related? And that was by Lawrence Mangel, Francis Mimuni, Dror Mandel, 
and a couple of others. And in this article, the authors examined the influence of maternal body mass index, or BMI, and of breast and nipple anatomic variations on breastfeeding difficulties and duration. This was a prospective observational study. In it, data was collected from 109 mothers of full-term newborns, and the women were classified as underweight, normal weight, overweight, and obese using World Health Organization definitions and were otherwise healthy. Um, Specifically, they excluded moms who had diabetes. Then breast anthropometrics um, were assessed and recorded after delivery and during hospitalization. The four pre-pregnancy BMI groups included 12 underweight, 59 normal weight, 20 overweight, and 18 obese women. The higher the BMI group, the larger the breast was, and that was significant. And in univariate regression, nipple diameter, nipple length, and areola diameter correlated significantly with breast size. The overall rate of latching difficulties was 15.5%, without significant differences among all four BMI groups. With um, the same um, percent protruding versus flat um, in the different groups. Early latching difficulties predicted shorter breastfeeding duration, and the authors conclude that high pre-pregnancy BMI has a negative impact on breastfeeding initiation and duration. And high pre-pregnancy BMI was also associated with decreased breastfeeding at six months. So I thought this was interesting for a few different reasons, some of which have to do with the questions they asked. And, you know, there's been a lot previously that has shown that there's an association with shorter and I should say less initiation and shorter duration of breastfeeding in mothers with high BMI. Yeah, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, there are a lot of theories as to why that is the case. Is it, you know, higher rate of C-section? Is it diabetes causing delayed lactogenesis too? Is it, you know, lots of different things? Yeah, absolutely. In this study, the obese women had a shorter duration of breastfeeding, and the other association that was found was that increased in birth order had a longer duration. So the prime-ups had shorter duration than moms who had more children. Um, the other thing, and that, that wasn't a surprise to me. Yeah, that's so, that's like, I would bet money on that, and I don't typically gamble, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thing that was um, interesting in here was that the obese women had less weight gain, which, you know, that is, I think, not a surprise to people who work in this area. Right. Um, right. And I wonder, this really made me think about the conversation we had last time we were podcasting, which was about trying to assess the glandular tissue and mom's potential for making milk and breast growth during pregnancy and how. If moms aren't gaining as much weight during pregnancy, that might change our perception of their breast growth during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Because with this study showing that larger women have larger breasts, and we know that that difference is really fat that's in the breast. Mm-hmm. It's not that they have more glandular tissue. You know, it makes it harder to assess changes during pregnancy, I would imagine. Yeah, it's really hard to it's really hard to assess. You can't tell the difference between fat changes and glandular changes. 
That's yeah. why that whole thing of like, not well, externally. Just... Yeah, no. And then um, you don't know, is it larger, just a larger thorax with a larger, you know, going from like a 38, you know, C to a 38D or is it Well, that was the and, other yeah. thing was how they measured the breast. It mm-hmm. was, it was based on this breast, like broad database. Um, and I'm like, you know, thinking about all the different ways that we measure things in medicine, you know, they submerge people to understand, not normally, but sometimes in research study to understand their long lung volumes and mm-hmm. do all sorts of, of things. And, and, you know, if you look at the statistics on whatever very large percentage of women are wearing the wrong bra size. Yeah. Victoria's Secret will tell you that they always <laughs> change women's bra sizes. That's right. And so like when you read the study, it says like and diameter and areola size were measured, you know, using taping, basically, a measuring tape. And then they use this, this bra sizing to measure the breast. And I'm like, how do I know it was the right bra size? Right. Right. Yeah. Seems plus, yeah. Plus bras are, you know, sports bras. A lot of women wear sports bras and so, or bralettes, you know, so you buy the one size uh, and then, you know, how do you, you know, women often... Like, I feel like you need to do some sort of some breast submersion to like get the volume of the breast. I don't know. Yeah. There needs, or you can just use, you know, good old um, engineering principles of like, you know, calculus of trying to figure out the size of a mound, you know, (laughs) the area under the curve, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing was they um, made a point to say that the overall rate of latching difficulties was similar in the groups of 15%. However, 58% of women did not answer the question on latching difficulties. (laughs) That's not very good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, does the abstract say all the groups were similar and then like two-thirds of the people didn't answer that question and then they went on to say there were you know i don't like around 14 participants were lost to follow-up in the 95 mothers with complete follow-up until six months of those who said they had latching difficulties 71 um let me try that again. 71% of mothers who did not report latching difficulties were still exclusively breastfeeding at six months, while only 28% of those who had initial latching difficulties were still exclusively breastfeeding at six months. Mm-hmm. That is a huge difference. But yes. the latching difficulties were self-reported on this questionnaire, and it wasn't specific to the baby didn't open it was pain you know like i just feel like well we're not doing a good job of quantifying that no but the other thing i would say is that in my lactation clinic when women call for a consultation like i just saw a woman yesterday who um called to make make an appointment she's pregnant her first baby she she said my first baby just didn't latch well and i wanted that to be better this time and so she came in she's due you know in a few weeks and we talked about like all the all the details and the reason why her baby didn't latch well is because she has insufficient glandular tissue most likely. So um so the baby stopped nursing, you know, that so the underlying reason was because you know, she didn't have enough milk and when she pumped for two months she never could come close to the amount of volume that um the baby took, even though her breast felt full when she pumped. So she called that latch difficulty because there yeah, was no explanation not... to her. So what does it latch difficulty mean? You know, I mean, that's exactly yeah. my point right. is that, you know, sometimes I see people like, Oh, you know, in the hospital and 
they're like, oh, yeah, it's going great. The baby's eating for an hour every hour. Hmm. That doesn't yes. seem great to me. No, exactly. And sometimes right. they're like, oh, yeah, they latch great. It was three times in 24 hours that the baby right. <laughs> fed the breast. And I'm like, hmm, also not great. So I really, I've been... I've been giving a lot of thought to this idea of how to give a score like we do for, you know, Billy Rubin to people who are living the ho- leaving the hospital as to what their risk is for yeah. success. And I haven't come up with all of my criteria yet, but somehow yeah. this has got to play into it. And in the past, I've only read studies about actually like latch scoring system. Right. Right. And it's not all the latch. It's so many other things. Right. It's so many other things. And I think that, you know, those prenatal risk factors um, that we're aware of and interpartum risk factors, you know, hemorrhage and, um, you know, uh, you know, baby is 35 to 37 weeks. I mean, there's so many different things that, rather mm-hmm. than just that actual latch. So, no, we definitely need a lot. I mean, it's only fair that we just have a really good scoring system. Like, we have great scoring systems for, like, you know, curb 65 for pneumonia and we have, or for lung disease for death. Um, for lung disease, or we have, you know, the Chad's VASC two score, you know, it's on like it's third oh. or fourth iteration. Yeah, yeah, and there's really great postpartum depression and anxiety, you know, right, scoring sheets that I have in clinic. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of we use the GAD seven for anxiety. We use, you know, PHQ nine for depression. I mean, there's all the kinds of scoring things that we do. Um, there's one for erectile dysfunction and for, you know, urinary problems for men with prostate cancer, all kinds of stuff. This is so educational. I don't know about any of those things. Yeah, they come live with me for come to my all, office. All the old people problems. Yeah. So what happens when these babies grow up. <laughs> um, oh. But, um, yeah, I mean, we have all kinds of scoring. So we, we desperately, desperately need scoring. And I think the scoring not only is... Um, you know, it's going to be more comprehensive than just looking at one particular factor. We need to look at all the factors, but we need this in order to make sure to keep moms and babies safe um, postpartum. So scoring for risk of mastitis, scoring for risk of um, insufficient infant weight gain, scoring for risk of hyperbilirubinemia, um, I think are really important. So, yeah, and I think the scores can work really well. Um, You know, we look at scoring, you know, I use FRAX scoring all the time for women who have um who are being um, evaluated for osteoporosis with their bone densities and that yeah. plays a really important role in what we do you know in terms of treating women you know to prevent fractures so yeah we that we're I, th- I feel like you know we have all this bench research and we have a lot of epidemiologic research but we don't have you know kind of the rubber to the road like like studies that really influence practice you know that are going to you know make baby safer and mom safer yeah i mean it's those those babies that go out and get severely dehydrated that we want to avoid the most but then the secondary to that is the babies that get unnecessarily supplemented and just continue down that path and i think that the hardest thing about this to me is that it's such a moving target and so you know I can give you a score for the next 24 hours and right. that's going to impact the first week and that's going to impact if you make it to six months in a year. But I can't tell you, you know, based on today, what's going to be happening in two weeks for a newborn. There's just too many factors that right. so many of them have to do with what support you get if you do fall into trouble. 
Right. And, and that's so I think the goal is trying to identify the people who need to be watched more closely. Right. Like, like the score of who needs to be seen on day uh, 72 hours, you know, and then um, another score for like, okay, you can wait, you know, for 96 hours or whatever. Well, but, you can um, just go to your pediatrician and they can probably handle it. And if not, <laughs> they should let us know. And you definitely are going to need more help than that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or their family doctor. Yes. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I was going to say that. <laughs> All right. So um, the third um, thing that we're going to talk about today is that article that came out. Many people who are listening probably heard about this. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention um, report on the receipt of breast milk by gestational age um, from 2017. So this was published in the MMWR, which is the Center for Disease Control's a weekly report called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report from June 7th, 2019. And um, so uh, this report um, states that 10% of infants are born prematurely, and the Center for Disease Control acknowledges that breast milk is important to prevent sepsis, necrotizing enterocolitis, and to promote neurologic development, particularly for premature infants. So what they did is they analyzed birth certificate data from 2017, um, and this data came from 48 states. So two states it didn't come from. One is, I think, Michigan and one from California. Um, and then also from D.C. And um, on, the birth, on these birth certificates, it states whether or not they received breast milk. So it doesn't talk about, like, how long they received breast milk, because obviously it's a birth certificate. And birth certificates are done really quickly after the baby's born, and they're submitted really pretty quickly. So what they found in this, in these birth, in this birth certificate data is that 83.7% of all infants in 2017 received any breast milk, which is actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then they broke it down into prematurity status. And so 71.3% of the extremely preterm infants who were born at 20 to 27 weeks received breast milk. And 76% of early preterm received breast milk, and that's 28 to 33 weeks. And then um, the late preterms from 34 to 36 weeks, um, 77.3 received breast milk. So there was a slight increase um, over time. And then for all, for the babies who were term over 37 weeks, it was 84.6% received um, breast milk at some point. So then when they broke it down by, um, by racial status, uh, they said that among twenty among the twenty to twenty seven week preemies, sixty seven point one percent of the infants born to African American women received breast milk, um, and then sixty only sixty point seven percent of infants born to Native Americans or Native Alaskans um, received breast milk, and then as compared to seventy five percent of infants between 20 and 27 weeks who were born to mothers of all other racial groups. So there, that's a huge difference in the mm. amount of breast milk received. Um, and then this difference was seen across all age groups between the different um, races. Um, and then, of course, as per our other demographics, they found that uh, infants of mothers who were younger, less educated, unmarried, and those who participated in Medicaid or WIC were less likely to receive breast milk. Um, 
so uh, in the discussion, um, they do mention that maybe one of the reasons why the 20 to 27 weekers overall receive less breast milk is because when they're first born, sometimes they don't receive anything enteral. They just have IV, IV treatment um, because of oral motor immaturity. Um, although, you know, there is that evidence, of course, swabbing the mouth and that, that you know, using the swabs and the oral care is, has been found yeah. to be really important in seeding the gut. So hopefully that will take off because there's good evidence for that. And then they also mentioned that maybe mothers of preemies may not be able to make as much breast milk. But I don't think of that as a good reason because, I mean, they overall are still going to have colostrum and, you know, small volumes, especially for those really early preemies. So. Sure. There are two other factors that come to mind. One is that, you know, depending, uh, I don't know, particularly if we're thinking about, um, you know, places where there are more rural you know, if I think about Native Americans, I think a lot of those people are in rural areas. Yeah. And perhaps there's more likelihood that they are, um, the babies end up being transferred if they're really early preemies to a tertiary care center so they're separated from the moms. And, you know, there is there is data that has come out that shows there's a disparity in terms of donor milk provision in hospitals that have higher um, rates of minorities Right. versus There's hospitals that have more Caucasians. And yeah. so, you know, if your baby is transferred and it's in an area that doesn't have as many resources, there may be less of a chance that they will get donor milk if you're not with them. Right. And they actually mentioned in there that in this article that uh, the infants who were transferred, that they, that they didn't have, there were some infants where they didn't have that data um, because the infants were transferred. So... Um, but then that segues, what you said segues into my next comment, which is that they mentioned that their NPINC data, which is the, um, the scoring that the hospital, the maternity, the maternity practice and neonatal care, infant, neo, um, infant nutritional care, I think it is NPINC, the scores where the hospitals, you know, basically, you know, talk about like they score themselves in terms of, you know, how, how baby friendly they are, um, in 2015, 66% of level 3 NICUs and 73% of level 4 NICUs use donor milk. So the level 3 NICUs are usually more rural. I mean, there's some level 3s in, in cities, but, you know, when I look at what's happening rurally in Wisconsin, you know, the level 3s are out there in the rural areas, and the level 4s are in, you know, just Madison and Milwaukee for the most part, maybe a couple oh, of cities. But that's interesting because we have so many hospitals, you know, I'm in the DC metro area mm -hmm. and we have so many hospitals, but only a few have level four. Yeah. I mean, you don't need that many. Level you don't four. need that many. Yeah. But there's, but, um, yeah, but I, but, um, I would think still, I think level threes are more likely to be in rural areas. So, um, so they basically say that, look, you know, it's really important that hospitals and healthcare providers implement policies and practices to ensure that all dyads receive support for, for breast milk feeding. And uh, this includes the need for that really consistent prenatal education throughout the prenatal period, um, because obviously women deliver early and they need to have this information, you know, not just when they start their childbirth classes at 30 weeks, but before that. And um, hospitals should increase access to donor milk since it's evidence-based, and the AAP also um, um, endorses the use of donor human milk um, when there's not enough mother's own milk. 
and then to provide long-term breastfeeding support for mothers, um, particularly for those who have to pump, but for all mothers, you know, all mothers need to be supported over time. Um, so that's basically it. So I was really glad to see that push. That's one more, you know, piece of data that should be shared with hospitals who have not been um, incorporating the use of donor milk. Um, and uh, I would really like them to do another study that, or another report that tells them that they should also use it on the floor too, <laughs> not just in the NICUs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I look, there are some big nation, national databases that NICUs use for quality improvement to mm -hmm. sort of keep track of who's doing what. And lately I've been wishing that we had sort of a similar thing for um, postpartum units for um, you know, level one nurseries that um, would make it easier for us to compare across the nation how many people are using donor milk with term infants and, you know, what are the policies and procedures and what's the variation across the country. I, I get emails constantly from um, different groups that I belong to that are talking about, oh, we want to update our hypoglycemia policy, and are you guys using glucose gel, and what cutoff do you use for low sugar, and, you know, people trying to get gather other examples so that they can form their policy, mm -hmm. uh, because the research into a lot of those things is, there's a lot of it, but it's not, you know, the studies are really, often they conflict, and we don't have, you know, a lot of it's based on expert opinion. Yes, a lot of it is. And, and yeah, and also, I mean, you have all your committees at hospitals um, of different people who have different, you know, um, personalities, uh, well, ethics, <laughs> or different <laughs> values, and they put their values into, you know, what really they should be putting their the evidence before the values, but, you know, well, sometimes it's something. like anxiety. So, yes, I it think, is anxiety. you know, sometimes people, I get frustrated because, because they're nervous, they're trying to choose like a really high cutoff for hypoglycemia. So they'll catch everybody and not appreciating that they're doing harm by, you know, doing more interventions on these babies that have low sugars that are 49. And I'm like, oh, it's a normal sugar. Please yeah. stop supplementing with formula. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's really hard. And then, you know, not really understanding, um, the difference between whole blood and and um, serum and venous and finger stick and all the all those other issues too. Not um, so. There's a lot of different interpretations of blood sugar as well. So it's a, that's a tricky. It's a tricky. super complicated issue. It is really complicated. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, so that's it for today. Do you have any other things you want to talk about today? <laughs> I could digress, but maybe I'll save it for the next time. Yeah, we'll come up with some other really good topics next time. Sounds good. Bye, Anne. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.